0: This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I'm Roxanne Cody with R.J. Julia Booksellers, and this is Just the Right Book. This episode is one of our shorts, although today it might be a little less short. We'll go a little longer. My guest is Billy Goldstein, who has joined us on shorts many, many times. Billy is an author, a reviewer, a guest reviewer on NBC, and a friend. And Billy and I love to do this together. And Our goal is to get you excited about some books that we've read, and hopefully you'll enjoy them as much as we did. Billy, why don't we start with you? You've just read one of the hot new books in January.
1: (laughs) Well, first, thank you for having me on, and I love that, hot hot books in January, so it's exactly... (laughs) Exactly what we need in January. And yes, the book that I have been in love with and am in love with is called My Friends by Hisham Matar, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist and also memoirist. He wrote the book The Return, which is covers some of the same ground that this novel, My Friends, does. Hisham Matar was actually born in New York to Libyan parents, but now lives in London. And this is a novel about a group of friends, uh, Libyan exiles living in the UK. And what happens to them basically beginning in the 1980s, they're exiled from the Gaddafi regime, and they are living in the UK. And then it's based on a historic event. In 1984, there was a protest at the Libyan embassy and some people died. And so that's the crisis that gives rise to the novel. And then also uh, it goes back and forward in time. I mean, so that we get the history of a group of friends and how they have come to be in the '80s in in London, and what Gaddafi has has done to Libya and to their families as well as to the to the country, and then we move forward in time to the Arab Spring, so 2011, and what that changes for them thirty years after their own sort of exile, as as I say, and and so you know here we are in 2024 reading about 2011 and that historic moment and then 40 years ago in 1984 and he brings out so much about what exile means mm. what the crisis in 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 Libya means for everyone and also what it means to to love your country and also to love your family and be afraid for them i mean because there, there's so much about secrets too. I mean, the fact that the narrator, who's living in the UK, can't even really safely communicate with his family mm. back in in Libya, and some of this is also based on Hisham Matar's own family history. His father was a uh, an enemy of you know, the Qaddafi regime, an opponent, and dies. Uh, a mysterious death that is is basically never resolved but was obviously a kind of political assassination. So it's such a haunted book by by so much of loss and yet what do these friends bring to one another and also just as a as a storytelling device there's a writer involved and a mysterious writer and a short story that he has written that has had a great deal of meaning. For all of these people, and then they come to know the writer. It's just a beautiful, I mean, I think I've compared books that I've read to this novel in particular, even though it's it's very, very different. All the Light We Cannot See is a very mm-hmm. serious sp- novel, obviously, about war. And yet one of the things that drove the novel forward is mm-hmm. the very short chapters and that you were always moving forward mm-hmm. through gripping story that rather than stopping the narrative as as chapters uh, breaks often do here we have over 100 chapters in a in a 400 page novel just like that that kind of structure and you keep reading as you go mm-hmm. from one story to the other and, and and come back to either the time in the 80s or the time in 2011 it's just it's a miraculous structure that keeps you emotionally engaged as well as narratively engaged.
0: Mm. You know, B- Billy, thank you for that. One of the things that I think I've enjoyed and are getting more currency now are these novels or memoirs that talk about exile, talk about displaced populations, about refugees that are very boots on the ground where Mm -hmm. you really develop an understanding of what that looks and feels like to experience that. You know, my house was, given that both my parents were refugees, were very much the opposite, where they didn't feel exiled. They felt, even though they came from displaced persons camps and concentration camps, they were so grateful to be in the United States mm-hmm. that they very quickly became of United States. And I never thought of them as exiles. But these books that are coming out, increasingly coming out, I think are so worth reading. Well,
1: and, and also, I mean, Hisham Matar, I mean, I... I- only know about his biography from you know interviews that i've read but the fact that he was born in the united states and had uh, a father who disappeared you know it's 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 that haunting i mean i used that word before but but how people are haunted by the past even as they are living fully in the present
0: yeah so th- this is a sharp right turn or left turn every once in a while i pick up a thriller just to know what the genre's doing, but the other to see if it really will qualify in my brain as a page turner, because I put down so many books. And so I picked up Alex Michelidi's new book, The Fury, and I had loved The Silent Patient. And I had interviewed him when that book came out. And he's a fascinating, he's got a extraordinary thriller of its own background, but The Fury reads very much like Agatha Christie. It's a whodunit on a Greek island with an Elizabeth Taylor kind of character and a another actress that's not quite Elizabeth Taylor and an unreliable narrator who's a brilliant storyteller. The I think his name was Elliot Chase. And I whipped through whipped through this book and with sort of like a smile on my face the whole time, even though it of course involved murder. (laughs) Um, but there was something very noel, yeah. I I kept thinking of it as an intersection between Noel Coward and Agatha Christie. I think that's where I'd settle on the narration. And even though I thought the ending was a a little bit too double-triple twist, I didn't care because I had such a good time, such a good time reading this book. I think I read it in a day and a half, and and it was on work days. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, at least your work is uh, related to books. And, <laughs> That's right. And you're, not, you're not a high-powered lawyer who's uh, goofing off <laughs> on, on the partner's dime. Although
0: they would do well to read a little more, maybe.
1: As you've been talking, I've been nodding, but of course people can't see that because I had the exact same reaction to the book. I loved it also. And I loved it. I, I don't know whether the author in, intended this, M- M- Michelides intended this, but the movie star you refer to, her first name is Lana. So, you know, of course, I was thinking of Lana Turner. I Turner. mean, he, it's not set in that era. And I I think I, I wish I had thought of that comparison between, you know, Noel, Noel Coward and Agatha Christie. I mean, that's just fabulous because what usually confuses me. And I, I also like to read uh, books like this to see what the phenomenon is. I mean, sometimes a mm. book is so popular and it's not something I have read yet. I'm often intrigued just by, well, why is this book so popular? That's how I came to read and then to love lessons in chemistry. So I had read The Silent Patient, somewhat belatedly. I think it had already been out for about a year and still a huge bestseller. And I thought, I've got to read this book. And I read that in two days. A minute. <laughs> and loved it. You know, and couldn't figure out anything that was going on which was, you know, wonderful. And um and this book too. I just I just raced through it. I mean, I don't I don't think I, I read it in one day. I mean I think it took me two or three not not because the book is slow uh, or you know ponderous in any way i just i divided my time i i thought it was just sensational and i i loved the fact that these people on this this island it is like an agatha christie mystery where i guess the the genre is called like a locked room mystery right. uh, but usually when i read an agatha christie or some some other books in that in that Vain. I'm, I'm really just waiting for the last page to be told what by the detective, what happened. And I can never figure it out. I mean, Hercule Poirot's explanations. I never see any of the clues that there were. I never understand until the last page. And, and I'm not sure I always understand the explanation, but this is just fantastic because of that unreliable narrator that you talk about. And I felt like I was a- always kept on my toes and. Yeah. I wasn't wasn't waiting for the detective to to tell me what happened, because there is no detective. So all of these people are just on their own. I mean I I loved that. And and the voice is is just is just fantastic. Yeah,
0: fabulous. Yeah. I wanted to go have dinner with him.
1: (laughs) So you've met him though. Although
0: then I'd be dead. Okay. What else do you have? Okay.
1: So again, a uh, you know, sharp right or left turn. I mean, just like jaywalking from from one kind of book to the other. Uh, I love uh, Stephen Macaulay's books, and um, I've he, never read him. Oh, he is just he's he's brilliant on a certain kind of book. I think everyone should get into his little world. You know, he has this. He, he has a kind of emotional world that he always sets up so brilliantly. So his most famous novel, I think, is his first novel, The Object of My Affection, which was made into a movie with Paul Rudd and Jennifer Aniston. But this novel is about a man in his 60s who's being broken up now with his longtime lover. This man's name is Tom, and it's about his sister, Dorothy, and her daughter. And uh, he is the beloved uncle, but the relationship between the mother and the daughter is a very bad one. And as the novel begins, she, the mother, is off on one of her kooky plans. I mean, she she has a new idea of what she's going to do with her life, and she's trying to get her daughter to come to be part of it. I'm I'm being cagey about about the plot just so I don't get bogged down in details. And the secret. Really, of who her daughter's father is. Hmm. And so that's one of the family secrets. And uh Stephen Macaulay is absolutely matchless on social comedies that also have this air of melancholy, this this kind of misfits in life, because everyone really is a misfit. In, in their own lives. I mean, whether it's a failed relationship or they don't get along with their family or they love their niece more than they love their sister. And the, the niece is dependent on her uncle because her mother is so unreliable in so many ways. And, and so the air of melancholy and yet comic complications that ensue in Stephen Macaulay's world are just, to me, a perfect combination the tone of his novels is as enveloping as the characters and their problems and so it's it's called you only call when you're in trouble and uh he always has great titles too i i uh, once uh, a number of years ago i mean it must be 10 years ago he published a novel called alternatives to sex and when i talked about it on my segment on nbc with the anchor she looked at the title and she said. Uh, alternatives to Sex. I hope this isn't nonfiction. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you only call when you're in trouble is a fabulous book, and I, I urge everyone to fall into the world of Stephen Macaulay.
0: All right, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, as I always do, take your advice. So, another bestseller that I picked up because I often worry I don't read enough bestsellers since the books I love seem to never be bestsellers, <laughs> But I picked up Yellow Face by R.F. Quang, and it was a Reese's book club pick. And anyway, this was another book that I just whipped through. So the premise of the book is that there are two friends. It's not really clear they were ever that good friends. They were both at Yale The character, Athena, was a it girl in the publishing world as a writer about Chinese historical events that she wove into a novel. I'm not giving too much away because it happens very quickly. Athena dies in this ridiculous choking accident, (laughs) and her friend, June, who becomes Juniper, steals her manuscript that she finds on the desk and publishes it. Well, what ensues is a blistering indictment of the publishing world, a blistering indictment of sort of this false way of, quote, unquote, and I use that deliberately, Diversifying the publishing pool, but then, you know, it gets taken up by one example of that diverse voice and what the rest of it looks like. Anyway, Quang is very funny. Very clear-eyed about what's going on. You know, there have been a lot of articles written that she's like biting biting the hand that feeds her because she's a best-selling writer. But it is a blast. And for those interested in the publishing world, you learn a lot. For those who know a lot about publishing, they'll find some stuff they agree with and some stuff they don't agree with. But she's a hell of a storyteller.
1: It sounds like the, the indictment of publishing, There, there's a lot of that this season. I mean, with the, with the movie American fiction, which I've not yet seen, but I want
0: to see that
1: sounds like it makes a lot of, Hey, fun of, of the publishing world. I mean, and some of the same themes, I guess it's, it's based on a novel by Percival Everett, which was called erasure. And, uh, so I'm eager to see that movie and I've heard Michael,
0: our producer is in the room and he's shaking his head. Did you love that? Michael loved Erasure all right I have to read that
1: and then I know a lot of people in publishing who've read Yellowface and some say it is completely on target and then others say yeah. it's a complete you know uh um, exaggeration exaggeration and and not accurate at all so I, I've been so intrigued by the divided opinion about its portrait portrait of publishing just one question about this book so when the the friend publishes the manuscript have they stolen it as their own you know from from the dead person cuz that sounds a little like uh Gene Corlitz's the plot uh which yeah. was published a few years ago where uh someone steals you know a story from from someone else and
0: Yeah so she steals it and she would say that she was a co-author but that's not the way it's published as a co-author and then it's about her cultural appropriation, because it is a story about the Chinese taken basically as prisoners to be soldiers. Mm -hmm. So it had a historical context. So she was accused of that. She was accused of plagiarism, which was a... And then, of course, social media plays into... And she was published. She changed June to Juniper. (laughs) And her last name is Song. So she allowed the sort of misleading name to also hang out there, which was quickly discovered. But there is revenge at the end. So I'll just leave it at that. All right. How about one more book?
1: Okay. Well, it's just on the verge of publication, I think, in next week or the week after. I loved the book It's called Cocktails with George and Martha, uh, Movies, Marriage, and the Making of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. It's by Philip Gefter, who has in the past written a biography of Richard Avedon that was published in 2020 called What Becomes a Legend? Most. And this is about, as it says, the making of the movie, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf with Elizabeth Taylor and uh, Richard Burton. And so it's a juicy Hollywood, you know, gossipy story of the making of this sensational movie uh which was extremely controversial in its time. It's almost hard to remember the the way in which the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf in 1962 was a completely new kind of play. This this insane marriage on stage with lots of drunken talk and the younger couple, Nick and Honey, who have come to George and Martha's house for uh, an all-night party and or what turns into an all-night party, a, a game of get the guests. And then the movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, who were married at the time and probably the most famous couple in the world. And the controversial way in which this movie broke so many bounds of what had previously really been censored as a kind of look. Mm. Uh, so you get a lot of the movie, ma- you know, the studio machinations of Jack Warner. It's just, it's just a juicy story, but also about how the movies have, have depicted marriage. And, and it's, it's just, it's really wonderful. And it's being published just in time, funnily enough, for Valentine's Day. So uh, <laughs> anyone, could, anyone, if you have a, loved one or spouse or husband or wife who has a sense of humor, then I think cocktails with George and Martha will will be the perfect Valentine's gift. And one thing obviously we can't see on, on the podcast is it has a fabulous cover with a great picture of, of Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton.
0: So speaking of that, uh, this was not a Valentine's faux pas, but an anniversary faux pas. Kevin and I <laughs> It was our 54th anniversary last Friday.
1: Happy anniversary. And
0: I had gotten us tickets to uh, the opening and in pre- in the previews of Days of Wine and Roses. And then it oh. dawned on me, dawned on me like two weeks ago. I don't know if I want to see if it makes sense for Kevin and I to celebrate our anniversary by going to watch uh, uh, like... Uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? One of the most devastating marriage deteriorations in the history of filmmaking. So I gave them to my niece and we went to the ocean house in Rhode Island (laughs) (laughs)
1: instead, which was a good move. (laughs) You saved your marriage for another 54 years, I think. Exactly.
0: Anyway, as a final book, this is like another, I'll call this a hard right turn. This past weekend was Holocaust Remembrance Day, and the must have been the 75th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and it reminded me of a book, actually two books, that are worth revisiting, and for reasons that'll become obvious in a minute. The uh, book is called "I Will Bear Witness," and it's two-volume diary of Victor Klemperer, and the subtitle is "A Diary of the Nazi Years." And one is from 1933 to 1941. I think the other one is from 41 to 45. Victor Klemperer, like many German Jews, considered himself assimilated and lived a very cultured, comfortable life and felt very much a part of uh, German life and didn't consider, they didn't consider themselves Jews of the ilk of Polish Jews, that they would be. So Victor Klemperer, as is clear in these diaries, is very slow to realize that German Jews are not going to be exempted, even he who is married to a non-Jew. And so what this diary does is a few things at once. One is you get a sense of day-to-day life in Germany for a educated, cultured couple. But the other is you see this kind of denial Mm
1: -hmm.
0: about what's going on. It, it, you know, and so at the same time that you see the buildup of Hitler and the Nazis taking away one right after another till they take away their homes, they take away their belongings, their businesses. But it takes a long time mm-hmm. for Victor to really realize that they're gonna come after him too. So the the quote that I often like is a quote from Philip Roth's book called Plot Against America. Mm-hmm. And the quote was It was the kind of event that the present considered unlikely and the future considered inevitable. That mm-hmm. sometimes, even when we're confronted with facts, we deny where they're headed, what the outcome of those things. And I think, given the state of the world, the state of our political environment, not paying attention to these things, it is, a, is at our own risk. And so I think taking a look at these books, which are still in print, are worthwhile for people interested in the Holocaust, interested in diaries, interested even in thinking about today's geopolitical situations. So it's called I Will Bear Witness by Victor Klemperer. Have you ever read them, Billy?
1: Yes, I have. I'm so glad that you raised it and the the issue of of talking about books like this, because one of the things that is, I mean, that Philip Roth quote is so wonderful and appropriate because, of course, it's a real-time diary. So on the one hand, you have that, that he's not always paying attention uh, to certain clues. I mean, partly because he does think of himself really as German and he's married to a, a non-Jewish wife. So he's protected for a while, also protected and protected and endangered by his own blindness in, in a certain way. But what I mean about the diary is, of course, he doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. So there's no, the, the quotidian details have a power in reading about them now, or yeah. that that you know, on a daily basis he wasn't even aware that they were recording in in a certain sense, and so you read it with that kind of amazement, um, also of like, well, how how could he not? Know or have seen it, and 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 so you get the sense of the Holocaust around and the, the history of Nazi Germany as a lived experience, not as yeah. a remembered experience. And uh, so, so it it is worth immersing your yourself in that. And one of the books that, as you were talking, I realized that we talked about ourselves in 2023 was Time's Echo, which is a mm. book about. World War II and the Holocaust. I mean, so to 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 read that also. I mean, about composers and the effect that World War II and the Holocaust had on them. But there's there's so much to read. And one one of the things that you made me think is how important it is also to read a book like Victor Klemperer's diary and realize that when they were first published, what about twenty years ago, the revelation that those books are right. in their moment, not only what they contribute to us, you know, reading them 20 years on, but what uh, landmark they are in revealing the history of that time. And it's so easy to forget that because they become classics. But what the shock was of reading uh, a Jewish man's diary of really the whole war uh, with Jesus. Yeah don't expect to have. You
0: know, and I do think like the, you know, renowned diary of Anne Frank, reading something that's written contemporaneously with any understanding of the future makes them incredibly powerful. Mm -hmm. So our time's up just like that. Our time is up. Billy, thank you so much. your time. Uh, Listeners, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully we've given you even more stuff, more books to read that you'll enjoy. So Billy, thanks so much. Thank you. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio, produced by Roxanne Cody and Michael Selick. Our editor is Gino Cordon at pleasantpodcast.com. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can email me any comments, suggestions, observations. We would love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at rjjulia.com. I do hope you will subscribe and follow us on Instagram at Just The Right Book Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.